Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sounds should be obtainable for everyone, we focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and... I'm very excited about this episode because we're going to talk to someone that I've been trying to get on here for, I think, eight months and uh, something like that. And we've just been playing schedule tag, schedule hell, and we could finally do it. I'm very, very happy about it. Um, it's uh, a man named Mick Gordon. And if you've heard of him, then you know that he single-handedly made industrial music cool again. Um, he's behind the uh, incredible soundtrack for the game Doom for the reboot and all kinds of other games too, like Wolfenstein New Order, Wolfenstein The Old Blood, Prey, Wolfenstein 2, The New Colossus. He's got a long list of credits in the video game world, all kinds of awards, uh Best uh, BAFTA Game Awards 2017, Best Music for Doom, Dice Awards, Outstanding Achievement in Original Musical Composition for Doom. Just the list goes on. And uh, normally I don't care about awards or anything, but I think that in this case they're very, very well deserved because, man, that soundtrack is just so sick. And um, I just want to say thank you for coming on. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for having me. It's great, isn't it? I can't believe it's been like probably probably eight months or something since, since we it, started it chatting has. about this stuff. Yeah, that's really crazy, isn't it? So, like, I never really understood, I think, how kind of busy people get, right? Like, a project will come along and it'll tie, you know, a schedule completely up for three or four months. And then I'll finish that project and then I'll get back to everybody that emailed me during that period. And at that point, they're all on projects that are going to take three or four months. And it just, it just to kind of line up schedule so we can do something so simple as to like sit down and have a chat for a while is, is super, super difficult, right? It's really, really weird. So man, thank you so much. I'm such a huge fan of the podcast. I really love like uh, the work that you guys have been doing. And um, thank you. Yeah. And a lot of my buddies have been, you know, on your podcast and chatting with you and things like that. So uh, it's, it's a real great, great pleasure and privilege for me to be uh, sitting here and chatting with you, man. So thank you so much. Hey, man, thank you. And let, let me ask you something, because you actually just talked about something that I'm very curious about, because uh, I remember that when I was studying up on some of my favorite soundtrack composers, uh, I read in an interview with Danny Elfman once, where he said that before he starts working on a movie soundtrack, he has a going away party with his friends <laughs> yeah he'll, he'll have like an actual going away party and then oh, uh wow. but he doesn't actually go anywhere he just goes to his basement or whatever <laughs> and uh and you know he doesn't see them for like three months or something while he's writing you know whatever movie he's working on yeah but yeah he does that every time uh apparently his going away parties are an actual thing so do you like, do you completely shut yourself off or do you have like a basic amount of communication that you do? Like how far into the cave do you go? Well, it depends. It depends on the project. It depends on what we're doing. So um, I've been in some sort of low level of high level stress for about 13, 14 years uh, on various different projects. And just a slow burn. Yeah, just a, just a pretty slow burn. Um, when you start a project, right, there's a lot of, a lot of, there's a big period whenever you're starting a video 
game project where you're just basically trying to figure out what you're going to try and do. So that process can take months and months and months. And that's a lot of communication. It's a lot of back and forth. It's a lot of Skype calls. It's a lot of visits into studios, um, hanging out with people and trying to figure out like what we're going to do, what direction is the game going to head in. Um, and seriously, that, that aspect of the project can take up 90, 95% of the time. It really can. And at this period, we're still working. We're still making music and stuff like that. And we're trying out different ideas and trying to see what sort of sound we want to, you know, capture and what sort of thing we want to represent in the project or whatever that might be. Um, but then for that sort of last 5% to 10% or whatever it is of the time that we have left, it's just insane. And it can be just days and days and days and days and days turn into weeks and weeks and weeks can turn into months and months where it's completely solid. It's all you think about. It's you, you crash out at nighttime for about four or five hours of sleep and then you get straight back up and you, you work on it again all day. Um, and that can drag on like a really sort of troublesome project can drag on like that for months sometimes years. Um, other projects, sometimes it's not too bad. The project I'm finishing up at the moment, we're probably going to do about six weeks of that stuff. Um, and what so do we six do? Weeks, six weeks after how long? Uh, about 18 that months. That initial phase. Yeah, about 18 months. So we've been trying to figure out what we're going to do for about 18 months for this project. And then now that we've got the kind of, you know, all the little little bits are in place and we can see the path and we can see what we're going to try and do. Um, now it's like sit down and really get stuck into it for six weeks. Um, which, which I haven't really done before most of the time it's usually about three months it's usually a three month period um, we call it crunch in the industry it's like crunching on time so mm-hmm. uh, yeah that's that's that kind of period there but do I have a going away party or things like that no I definitely don't have going away parties <laughs> that, that sounds pretty cool um, and it's pretty like it's pretty solid so it's pretty like absolute lack of com- communication I'll disappear for a couple of weeks um, I try to still do a bit of exercise and I try to try to still uh, you know get at least some decent sleep each night um but yeah, it's pretty solid. It can get pretty solid. So to any of uh, your friends out there who are listening, they shouldn't take it personally if you don't get back. I've been doing this for so long, I don't think I have any friends anymore, dude. Oh, man. <laughs> so, so real. <laughs> no, I think, like, it's just it's just different. That's it. Like, I don't... I don't have, you know, a big group of social friends where we all hang out and, you know, go to bars and stuff. I just just don't have that because we're just... Uh, I don't have the, the time, really. I mean, I've got a lot of bunch of, like, really good buddies that I might see once or twice a year. Um, and usually that's when everybody's schedules are quietened down and, and we're going to, you know, kind of get together and celebrate a little bit and you kind of de-stress a little bit, which is nice. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's I don't know, it's it's one of those things like, like if you really want to get stuck into something, you really want to want to do something and dedicate your life to something, I guess, you've really got to do that fully. Um, Absolutely. There's yeah. no way around that. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of, like, my buddies and friends are all doing the same sort of thing. You know, they're working in the music industry. So everyone gets it. Yeah, exactly. They're working in the music industry. They're making video games. They're working in software design. They're, um, you know, running running gyms or whatever it might be. Um, but they're just, they're busy, you know, they're busy, busy types. They're really pouring their lives into the thing that they're dedicating themselves to. So um, there's not a lot of time for that sort of, you know, social side of things, which is cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. It is cool. Right. Um, so when you say you try to get some decent sleep, I've been on you know, tears like that for multiple weeks on end where the rest of the world fades out and all Mm. I have is the project. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And my sleep has gotten absolutely destroyed. It's just turned in, you know, the concept of days melts away for me. And then it just turns into something like where eventually bedtime is noon. 
Mm. You're getting up at 4 p.m. and uh, it's kind of unhealthy. So how do you keep it? Um, how do you keep it healthy? I'm a lot better about it now, by the way. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I but, think uh, that's the thing is that you've got to run through the gauntlet a couple of times to figure out what your mm-hmm. body can and can't, can't do. Right. And I guess as you get older to, to pull that old, you know, cliche out of the, the woodwork or whatever, um, it changes. You really can't do that sort of thing anymore. So no, the worst stuff I've ever had, I was working on a project and we were so tight on the deadline. I had a week to do this like really big theme for this character. And, um, I was so behind and everything went wrong. You know, you can you can have the best laid out plans, right? You can <laughs> sit down and say, on oh, Monday, this is going to happen. Tuesday, this is going to happen. By Wednesday, we'll have this finished. By Thursday, we'll have that done. By Friday, we'll be fine. We'll finish it. It'll be sent off. Everything will be fine. And of course, by the time you sit down on Monday, you're dealing with a whole bunch of plugin conflicts or somebody doesn't send you the file on time or they send you the file, but it's the wrong file. Or you sit down, you just can't have any ideas. Nothing's working. You break a guitar string, whatever it might be. There's all these unplanned problems that seem to pop up. And I had a week of this stuff and I didn't sleep. I kid you not, I didn't sleep for about four days, which I didn't even think was really humanly possible. Um, By the last day, um, I was uh, taking like, you know, a nap every half hour just to kind of lay down and stop the room from spinning. Um, and I, I was forced into this situation because I had this immovable deadline on Friday, which was a flight. I had to get on a plane in Melbourne and fly all the way to uh, Vegas, to Las Vegas. So that for me is about a 14, 15 hour flight. And by then, yeah. this, this thing that we were working on needed to be out into the world and for sale and in people's hands. So it was just such a bizarre situation of schedules where I really couldn't do anything to get around it. And everything started going wrong and uh, it was a real hell of a leak. And I, I literally, I was... I wrapped up the track and I, you know, ran a quick compressor over it and things like that, bounced out each little bit that I needed to bounce out. And I hit send on the email uh, to the people I was working with, with like one foot in the taxi ready to go. Like it was that tight, ready to go to the airport. It was that tight, that, that, uh, that deadline. Uh, and then I crashed out on a plane for 14 hours. I landed in Vegas. I opened up laptop and I had a whole bunch of changes to get through. So it was like straight back to work. Um, <laughs> now I'm not telling this story as like a sense of pride or something like that. Cause honestly, that is stupid. It is so bad. It is so bad for your health. It's so bad for your body. It's so bad for the people around you. It's so bad for your stress. So, um, but that's how bad it can get. And I really, 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 really work to avoid those situations now. So the method that I've kind of come up with to solve these sort of problems now is a lot more planning. Now, I know I said before that we can have the best laid plans uh, and <laughs> things go wrong, but the idea of a, of a proper plan is that you adjust the plan as things go wrong. So the trouble, I, yeah, the trouble I fell into that four-day w- awake problem, right, that, that thing that I just told you about, was that I tried to stick to my plan throughout the week. So when things went wrong on Monday, I said, well, I'll still t- stick to the original plan, but now I've got two days' worth of stuff to do on Tuesday. And then when Tuesday went wrong, I said, well, that's okay, I'll just stick to the original plan, but now I've got three days' worth of, of tasks to get through on Wednesday. And that's just not how you can do it, right? You've got to, if you, if you lose Monday, you slice out whatever Monday cost you, and you just don't do that stuff. You know, you've got to readjust and change, change perspective a little bit, change priorities, and adjust as you go. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, too, uh, it's important to realize which element of what you have to do that week is going to get the most bang for the buck. Like which, 
of all those tasks you have to do, like if you broke it down to three tasks, just say out of 15, what are the three tasks that will generate the most results or the most progress or yeah. the the mo- the most whatever profit um either way you look at it i find that in those types of situations that's what i start to shift my mindset to and cuz you're absolutely right uh, planning i think planning is fantastic but if you don't alter the plan to f- match reality you know you're basically going to drive into a wall yeah absolutely uh, so you, you absolutely have to um, to account for what's actually happening in real life and make decisions as to what items you need to prioritize in order to get the most results because the clock does keep ticking. And I think that uh, I think a scenario that goes perfectly to plan is just as random as the shit that goes wrong. Mm when you have a plan, you know, like it's one of those things where like, you know, it, it random stuff happens and it could randomly all go well, but t- I do think it's random when it all goes yeah. well. <laughs> no, that's so true. That's so true. And yeah, I think planning, like we, we, we can't treat planning as the first p- uh, part of the process, right? Planning is a constant part of the process. Yes. You're always working through it. You don't plan at the beginning and then work to that. You're constantly adjusting it as you go. Um, I'm also a bit more of a fan these days of making a, a better decision at the start. If, even if it takes a little bit more time, we just work through those different possibilities to see what's actually going to be the better decision. Whereas I used to just make a decision and run with it and try and make it work. Um, whereas, whereas now I try to, you know, try and actually, um, you know, change things up as we go. Um, but yeah, so that's the importance of it. But I mean, how does that work like on a day-to-day structure thing? So I, I, I kind of use this um, technique called blocking, um, which is where I divide the day up into two-hour blocks, right? So um, mm-hmm. I have three two-hour blocks in the morning, and then I have two two-hour blocks in the afternoon. I have an hour and a half break for lunch, and then I have a half-hour break before the two blocks in the, the afternoon start. Um, and the blocks themselves are broken up with 30 minutes of, of rest, time you could best describe it as time where you're not working and the idea of that is when you sit down to do that two hours of of task two hours of work that's all you're focusing on so all social media gets switched off all youtubes get switched off phone gets switched off all of that stuff gets gets locked away outside of the the room and you focus like physically physically yeah, absolutely out of the room. absolutely absolutely if that thing buzzes i don't even want to know about it for the two yeah. hours while i'm sitting down working on something i don't even want to think about anything else right nothing else nothing else so all that stuff gets physically locked out of the room um, and then I focus on that task for two, two hours and it's quite easy to do. It's, it's really not so crazy to do. Right. Um, I set up a little timer. I time it for two hours when those two hours are done. Um, that's when you do leave the room and you do go check Twitter or whatever it is you're kind of, you know, desiring to do at the time. Um, that's when you do have your break, you have your social break, you have your mental break and things like that. And then after that half hour, which I find is pretty good enough to kind of reset where you're thinking, your current way of thinking you jump straight back in and do another two hours. And it sounds pretty intense, but you're you're able to get so much more work and focus done that way, rather than having a 50% focus on your work and a 50% focus on the other things that are going on around you in life. 
Um, it's not always possible to do that sort of thing, but that's the general philosophy that I try to approach each day with. Um, I also write down what I'm going to do with each two-hour block. So when I sit down for the morning blocks, for example, the three two-hour blocks that I have in the morning, I will write down what task I need to complete by the time that two hours is up. Now, if I haven't got the task finished by that two hours, um, then we readjust the plan, right? We readjust from there. We either bump mm-hmm. it into the next one or we leave it and we come back to it tomorrow. Um, but there's a couple of interesting things that happen when you're working like that. Number one is that you really get good at doing a task in two hours. So if you need to edit a drum part, for example, you can spend days doing that. But if you sit down and you say, I'm only going to do this for two hours and that's my schedule, that's all the time I have in the world to dedicate to it, you will find a way to identify the most important elements of that drum edit to focus on within that two hours. And that stops you from spending two weeks on that drum edit, right? Um, the, Absol- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that's really good about it is when you finish those two hours, it forces you out of that situation. You change your mental perspective. You gain more perspective on what the, on the project that you're actually working on. So when the, you actually come back to do the second block of time, you've got an, a sort of renewed perspective on it. I know I've just said perspective a lot, but... Um, the idea is that it kind of gets you out. I don't know about you, like, and I don't know about anybody else, but I can really get buried and like laser focused on something stupid, right? And I've spent two days, oh, yeah. <laughs> two days tweaking a kick drum sound before, and it's like not better at the end of those two days. It's just different. It's just different, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's uh, this is something that we talk about on the podcast all the time, and that we tell uh, our subscribers on Nail the Mix all the time is like, for instance, when you're mixing a song for a client when the first thing you want to do is get it out the door as quickly as possible and to the client. You get it sounding balanced and like a song, but before you sit there and try to get the best snare drum sound on the planet and spend five days on the snare, get it just sounding like a song and send it to the client because Mm. they're going to have their own opinions. And so no matter what you do and how long you tweak out this crazy delay tale or whatever, they're going to want changes. Mm, and so you're yeah. wasting your time. Yeah. So just set set a deadline, meaning a couple hours, get it done, and uh, move on with your life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you get really good at just kind of falling forward, I guess you'd yes. say, right? Rather than sitting there and becoming hesitant about any decision you're going to make and whether it's, um, whether it's going to work or whether you need two days on that kick drum or whatever, you just kind of settle onto something and work with it. And then you can always come back to it later. You can always come back to it later, you know? And I mean, of course we do that, especially when we're mixing as well, right? Like you can have the best sounding kick drum in the world, but the moment you put that snare drum up, all of a sudden that's, that kick drum sounds terrible, right? So, you know, you've got to kind of get used to working in, in context. And I think especially if we're talking specifically about mixing, your role on a project is definitely one of context within everything else. You are not going God on the project, um, you were working with so many other people. You're working with the musicians that have written it, the, the engineer who's recorded it. You're even working with the listeners who are going to listen to it afterwards, right? All of these of things need to be taken into consideration when you're working on a project. And, um, and so that's the thing. You just kind of get good at, at, at rolling with it and working with these people, you know? Now, is this... Uh, so you sound like a super efficient human being. And I can just tell from the way that you structure your thoughts in speech down to what you're actually talking about, that you are an efficiency master. Were you always like that? <laughs> like, is this like, like, do you have like military family or like, did you go to like, where does this come from? 
That's a really interesting question, man. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. I really like that stuff, and I'm glad you, you mentioned that. I mean, that's cool. Thank you very much. I think I can always be more efficient, but, you know, who knows, right? Um, but I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I don't know. I think if I look at it, my mum was really organized. She was super, super organized, and I think I picked up a lot from her, my mother. Um, I did a lot of martial arts when I was younger, and the martial arts that we did was very super disciplined. So it was a lot of, like... Um, you know, kicks and punches and all that sort of fun stuff that we associate with martial arts now. But there was also a lot of, you know, standing in one place with your arms out to your sides for 10 mm-hmm. minutes when, you know, when you're seven years old. And of course, like a lot of people might think of that as torture or something as such. But to me, it wasn't. It was kind of like a form of discipline. It was this mental challenge of being able to stand there in a single place, standing up dead straight and with your arms straight out by your sides. And I mean, if you try to do that for two minutes, it's, it's agony. Your shoulders just get so, so jacked up, right? And so we were kind of forced to sit there for, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes or something like that. But what happens is you start to practice these sort of, you know, mental challenges of where you're putting yourself somewhere else. You know, you realize it's just the pain in your shoulder. There's probably a reason for that pain, but it's really not life-threatening pain, right? So you kind of just figure out a way Hopefully. to get through it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I did that for a bunch of years. I don't know, man. I mean, I think, I think anybody who has an approach to music is going to have some level of, of sort of predetermined discipline already because the actual act of sitting down and doing something so unnatural as learning to play an instrument, right? There is nothing in life that we do that is similar to playing a bass guitar or playing drums or playing a saxophone. There's absolutely nothing in life that is naturally similar to that. The finger dexterity you need to be a you know cool bass player or whatever is insane. The wrist mobility you need, the coordination you be to be a drummer is 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 crazy and our bodies can adapt to that but it takes time and when you're learning to play an instrument the part that they don't tell you is that you're going to suck for years and you got to sit down and play that guitar or those drums or whatever it might be and you're going to suck and you're going to suck for a long time right and you're going to see all these people around you that are so much better than you and you're going to suck but you've still got to find a way to go back to it and practice it a little bit more and work on it for a little while. And over time, you kind of get, you get used to it, right? So I think those, like, I mean, if I had kids, I'd totally be getting them into, you know, playing instruments and stuff like that because the life lessons that you can learn from the ability to sit down and focus on something and practice for a while, you can carry that to so many other elements in life. You really can. So uh, so sounds like you got it from a very young age too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I think if I looked at my mom, definitely had that sort of thing. I had martial arts when I was younger. Um, I did army stuff for a little while. Um, Boom, there it is. Some discipline it. stuff as well. But yeah, I mean, that's not saying like anybody who does military training or whatever is going to, you know, end up with discipline and things as well, because it's kind of forced upon you in a military situation. It really is. Um, so yeah, I don't know, man. That's a, that's a good question. What do you think? Are you, do you find, well, like, like your discipline stuff, your ability to run you know, mixing tutorials and podcasts and then do your own work as well. I mean, that takes a lot of time and effort and scheduling and things like that. Where does it come from for you? Um, fear. At first it was fear of not getting things done, which drove me to be really, uh, to go on these insane stretches like we were talking about earlier, just to get things done. And see, the thing is, uh, my dad, uh, he's a symphony conductor, but he was also in the military. Mm-hmm. And so he's a super, super intense fellow. Um, and so I think that it was just ground into my brain <laughs> from a very young age that you need to work your ass off. 
um, and you need to sit down and get things done. Now, the thing is that I've always had the, uh, I don't know, like the energy or the uh, the spark to sit down and do things, but uh, it's not till recently that I started to really work on efficiency hmm. and org- organization because I noticed that um, working with fear as a motivator ended up working me into corners a lot right? because I would just work, 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 work. And then I, by luck, I guess through having some skills, I would come out at the other end with the project okay. Right. But I always felt like it was a giant house of cards where if like one thing went wrong, the whole project would collapse. So then a few years ago, I started to work on efficiency techniques, uh, you know, all the way down to what kind of templates I would use for mixing that had all the pre-routings and, you know, the simple things like that. But you start adding one simple thing here to one aspect of your life, then, uh, you know, switching from to-do lists to outcome-based thinking, like I do the block thing like you do as well. Um, You know, once you start, it's not one big thing that makes you an efficiency machine. It's a bunch of little things done over a period of time. Uh, So, and that reminds me, I wanted to say to, uh, to people who are hearing about this block method, um, the block method basically saved my life. Um, in, I mean, not really. I wasn't dying or anything, but uh, <laughs> it, it, sa- it saved me in terms of uh, when I figured it out, it's what provided me with, I guess, the, uh, the structure to be able to uh, kind of like create the, this company that I have now and to get out of situations that I felt were holding me back. Like it was the only way that I could do all the different things that I do. And I'm now kind of living my dreams. So it, it's very, very powerful. But for those of you who are hearing about this and are like, how am I going to do two hours? Start with 10 minutes. Mm. Like that's, you know, start with 10 minutes. The most important thing is that you get rid of all the distractions. And for those 10 minutes, all you're doing is that one thing that, uh, that you set out to work on. And once you're like 10 minutes, no big deal, go to 15. Before you know it, you'll be at two hours. And then when you can do two hours of dedicated focus, then you're really going to be accomplishing things. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I feel like I got a lot done and I accomplished a lot like through my 20s just through, you know, just through being a Neanderthal about it and just being brutal. But uh, I started to get a lot more quality out of my life when I stopped being that way and I started to get super organized. So for me, it was more about, uh, it's not that I was obsessed with it, it's more that I wanted to get more out of life, and I realized that bludgeoning it wasn't gonna wasn't gonna get me mm. there. Yeah, that's so well put, man. That's that's like really, really, really well put. I'm I'm so glad you're sharing that sort of stuff. That's really cool. Really, really cool. Well, thanks. Well, yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating thing. It is because I mean, how many people do you know who can bludgeon their way through work? I know quite a few, but uh, <laughs> it. It's almost like if you don't have that kind of outcome-based structure, it it's almost ran. There's like a there's like a chaos element or like a random element to where you end up. Hmm. Um, and 
I'm not okay with that. Like, <laughs> and let me let me make sure that I'm being clear about something. Like we said earlier with planning, that you can't, you know, you should plan, but don't stick to your plans like they're written in stone, right? You need hmm. to keep adjusting. So obviously, if you have an outcome for a block, like you said, if you don't accomplish what you set out for that block, you definitely do need to uh, readjust. It don't just uh, don't just keep driving into the wall over yeah, and yeah. over, beating your head and into the it, wall over it, and over. It took me a while to understand too that if you don't get that task done in the two hours that you set aside to do it, it's not a failure. No. It's just the way things happen, you know. I've never, I think from 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 the very beginning from starting to do this blocking method, I don't think I've ever achieved something in two hours the way I intended it to. Um, but you get something. You get something that you can work with. And you certainly get a lot more than if you didn't do anything for two hours, right? That's the obvious point there. So, um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And it's also worth being said that too, like this is the thing that I find works for me in my current situation, you know, um, it's not going to work for everybody in their situation. If you have other responsibilities, that needs to be factored into the time as well. Because it's easy when I'm saying, you know, like I was saying before, I don't have friends, I don't go see anybody and all this sort of thing. And it makes me sound like a real, like a real jerk, right? Um, and that's <laughs> just because like the way my life is structured now is I don't have those responsibilities of additional things. I don't have, you know, dependents relying on me for things. Um, I, I don't have, you know, another job that I have to run off to and work to or commit to. Um, I don't have classes I've got to teach or any of this sort of thing, right? So I'm able to do that. But, you know, I, I understand too very much as, as well that that's a very, very specialized, unique sort of situation, right? It's not for everybody. So you've just got to kind of find what works for you. And honestly, if you can find two hours a day to dedicate to anything, you're going to see a drastic improvement in, in life, right? We all remember back to those years when we were a teenager practicing our instrument or whatever it might have been or having all this spare time to do anything. And then as we get older, this sort of spare time starts to disappear. Um, so it's, it becomes a real challenge to try and find a way that that works in a modern life, especially in 2017. In a modern life, that's very, very difficult to do. Um, but there's all sorts of different ways I've seen other people do it. I've seen people that do three weeks on, three weeks off. So they will work solidly for three weeks and then they will have three weeks off where they don't do anything. They will not work on a single project. And then when they come back, they'll do another three weeks and they'll work seven days a week probably 20 hours a day uh, to get their tasks done, right? Yeah, and it's just a different way of doing it. I don't know if I could sustain that. Um, then there's other people. I mean, there's people that really like to get up super early in the morning. There's people like to, you know, sleep, you sleep all day and then get up in the afternoon and do it. Whatever, whatever you find that works for you, really. Well, all those different methods aside, I feel like no matter what, probably if you looked at what each one of those people was doing the one thing that would probably tie them all together is the level of focus that they applied when actually working. Yeah, that's so true. I've got a buddy who, uh, he's one of those types that you would say is like a really bright light and a bright light burns really, really mm -hmm. bright, right? He's that sort of type. Now, he's a genius. He's really, really great. And he will sit down and work on a track for 48 hours straight, right? And he will sit down and start that track for 48 hours and he will finish that track at the end of 48 hours and he'll release it and it'll be a hit. And he'll tour it around and make a big, big, big splash of money out of it and, and everybody will love it, right? And he's done this numerous times. But then he won't touch a computer for six months. And um, 
it's interesting. The level of focus that he sits down for that 48 hours to work on that great track or whatever burns him out for weeks, for months. And he might seep into months and months on end for, of deep depression afterwards, right? It's, it's pretty insane. It's pretty crazy. So, yeah, everybody's well, different. Well, it, creativity is definitely a finite resource. Right. Um, and you definitely need to recharge it. And it's very, very interesting that uh, you point out your friend that sometimes needs months and he actually does harm to his uh, mental state mm. and his physiology by going into a depression. Uh, he gets tapped out that hard. But, I mean, that's what happens. You know, when you choose to put in when you choose to focus your brain that hard and, you know, use the creativity muscle that hard, there is a price you have to pay, which basically manifests in recovery time. Mm, you have yeah. to recover. Um, I feel like with the way that you do things, it seems like a very uh, reasonable way to go about it to where you can, by the way that you structure it, I feel like it's structured in a way that you can actually keep it going day after day after day after day without killing yourself without yeah, and honestly, get, that's, that's getting probably, depressed. Yeah. And that's, that's probably driven by the necessity of the, the type of work that I'm finding myself doing too. So when I start a project, I'm putting my name on a, on a very scary looking contract that says I'm going to have a whole bunch of music delivered on a certain date and, um, come hell or high water, I really need to make sure I hit that date. And so what you said before about creativity being a finite resource, that's so true. And I, I definitely disagree with the fact that these people, you know, might say like they can switch it on and switch it off. You can switch it. Yeah, you can you can definitely switch the ability to make music on. Definitely. I can sit down and, you know, bring up some drums and bring up my favorite chord progression and bring up my favorite, you know, sounds or whatever it might be. I can make a track. Absolutely. Is it going to be good? Is it going to be interesting? Is it going to be creative? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's just going to be exercising the skill of making music. Music. And that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, so a lot of the time, like these, these schedules and things that I'm working to, as I said, they can't be moved. There's a big pressure. Um, and not only that, but that's just not like my role, but my role is in consideration of all the other roles on the team as well. Sometimes these teams have two, three, four, five hundred 500 people on them. And each one of them is working around your schedule and I'm working in turn around their schedule. Um, often the marketing side of things is very, very important these days too. And marketing dates need to be hit. We need to make sure we have that game ready to show off at E3. We need to make sure we have this trailer ready for Gamescom. We need to make sure the shipping date is not going to move in October. And so I needed to kind of find a way through necessity to be able to replicate the ability to work on somewhat of a creative level um, in a predictable manner. So that's kind of how that came about. And that's very different than when you're working with artists, like in a band situation or with a record label, because it, it, those are those are much more those deadlines are much more malleable. <laughs> they just are. <laughs> um, I mean, they're, I always feel like when dealing with a label deadline that it's not real. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to sound bad and I don't want to give people the wrong idea. Like, you should get your work done on time. But uh, I've just seen records delayed so many times mm. and that I, I just feel like they're relative. It's, it's kind of like a aim for this date sort of thing. But... In your world, these companies are huge. And like you said, these teams will have hundreds of people on them. Like, you can't mess around with those dates. Mm. 
Yeah, and it's, there's a whole industry behind it. Yeah, there is, and there's several industries too, right? So, say for example, when we finish the game, we print the game, we need to send that game to a, a, a like a the equivalent of a printing press, right? Where basically they make a whole bunch of copies on it and put it in the boxes and send it around the world. Um, so that needs to be hit on a certain time because there's that that process itself takes a certain amount of time. That can take a month. Um, and then once that's out into the shops, the shops themselves are expecting to get that game on a certain date. They've got their posters up. They've got their pre-orders that they're selling. They've got people expecting that game to turn up. They've probably got their midnight launch organized. So all that stuff needs to be organized, right, and, and stuck to as well. Um, so there's all these things. Like, it's, it's multiple different industries that are in play here. Um, and we find, too, that, like, then there's the market changes, right? So Christmas, obviously, is a huge period, especially for any toy manufacturer or anybody in the entertainment business or whatever. Christmas is a huge thing. Christmas is that one time of the year where everybody will give themselves the reason to spend a little bit more money than they normally would, right? And that's when they usually go out and watch movies mm-hmm. or buy video games or new music or whatever. It might be a new guitar. Um, so, you know, that sort of stuff needs to be hit as well. If we're shipping in January, nobody has any money left. Now we're living with regret, right? We ate too much food over Christmas. We're not going out. We're saving money. So if you release your game during that period, you're not going to make the sales that you expected to. So, yeah, it's very, very legitimate. It's very, very important. Now, question about your history, which is, did you know what you were getting yourself into? Oh, it's kind of weird because it's always changing. So I don't really know what I'm getting myself into every day, really. <laughs> but, well, I mean, like, in a macro sense, like, right. about the in- industry, uh, your corner of the music industry, which is, I don't know if it's really the music industry, it's the video game industry. Right, right, but, right. Um, did you know what you were signing up for at the outset? Yeah, not really. I think, I think... I don't think anybody does. I mean, it's difficult, right? Because there's not one industry that you can really point to and say, ah, that's that's the game industry. You know, it's, yeah. it's really just a bunch of programmers who've learned different skills. It's a bunch of artists that have learned different skills. It's a bunch of designers that have learned different skills, a bunch of sound people, marketing people, producers. And they've all got different skills, and these people come together to make a game. Uh, it, that's not really the game industry as such, because each one of those teams is completely different because of all those outside influences that every single person brings into it. It's not like working for a a local city government where they have a policy in place, which everybody turns up on time, mm-hmm. goes home at a certain time, gets paid per hour, whatever. It's not like that. There's no industry. That's why I think there's a complete failure of, say, unionism and things as well, because this, it's impossible to define what working in the game industry is like. From a macro level, though, as you said before... Um, you know, I'd heard about crazy deadlines and I remember reading stories about people working like really, really hard to get a project done. And I think when I was younger, I just kind of stupidly looked at that as a noble sacrifice, right? To buy a ticket to get into the industry. I had to work for four days straight. I had to, you know, kill myself for this, for this job, right? Um, and that's really not the case. It's really, really silly to approach something like that. And I'd be interested too. I mean, you you said something very interesting before, where you were like, um, you were motivated by fear. Yeah. Oh to yeah. To do something right. And so that's interesting because I can kind of relate to that. I wonder if that sort of noble sacrifice came into your mind as well, or were you doing it for a different yes, fear? A- hmm. No, absolutely. I can totally relate to that. I would. I um. I kind of had like a running competition with myself, which. How many days can I work without taking a day off? Right. You know, like, and once you get past 90 days, like, then you're really, you're, you're really a man or something. Right. Like, you know, once it's, it's, it's stuff like that. Like, how many hours straight was right. this session? Right. You know, all those kinds of thoughts, like, just to prove to myself that, like, 
I can fucking do this. Right, right. Like a, like a beast. And the fear, the fear was like the fear of fucking up the project, the fear of ending up working at the gas station at the age of 45, the fear of, the fear of just so much fear. Uh, It just drove me to, yeah, to like, pull those hours and I did look at it like a noble sacrifice. Mm. Now the thing that I think is an interesting question is, so you did that stuff, I did that stuff and just about everyone I know that's successful has done that stuff (laughs) and they get to a point where they're like I don't do that stuff anymore. So there's like, you know, there's a trajectory or like an arc to every successful music person's story which is that they get to a point where they will no longer work 24 hours a day, eight days a week. Um, But, and then they typically say you shouldn't do that. But is that really true? Like, do you think that you would have had the the same success if you hadn't done that in the initial years? And I'm not so sure. It's so difficult to to kind of answer a a hypothetical like that because we we just can't go back and test differently, right? it's certainly, I think, anybody in this industry that we're working in, I'm, I'm talking about any entertainment industry, you don't fall into it, right? You don't accidentally end up doing what no. you're doing, right? You do it by intention and, and somewhat by design, and then you're reliant on luck and other factors that are outside of your control. And I think that probably has a lot more to do with it than, than anything else. I mean, if I had been born five years earlier, for example... I wouldn't have met. I wouldn't have met the revolution in internet speeds that have allowed somebody like myself, who's living all the way down in Australia, to be able to send this vast amount of data. I would be five years older by the time that that came, and I'd probably would have been in a different industry by then. At the same time, if I was born five years later, that internet boom would have happened before my time, and I probably would have grown up trying to learn how to play guitar based on videos on YouTube rather than going along to jazz lessons, for example, because that was the only way. And, you know, purchasing tab books of Steve Raven one licks mm-hmm. that took six weeks to arrive and things, right? Like, now I can jump on YouTube and I can learn how to play Little Wing instead. Um, and it's just different. It's not like better or worse, but it's just different. Like it's, it's you know, I'm in this situation because of that luck. Um, and the, the, the danger, I think, happens a lot of time when anybody kind of reaches some level of whatever you might label as success, right? Whatever that might be labeled as. If somebody reaches that point, the biggest mistake they can make is to say, this is because of me. This is because of the decisions I made. You know, this was my design, it's not. You're so reliant on so many things that are outside of your control, where you were born, how much money you grew up with. Um, you know, a month of the year that you were born in can have a huge difference. Um, whether you've suffered any sort of disease or accident through your life. I mean, if I'd broke my wrist at the age of five, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And, and at the five years old, that, that would make no sense whatsoever. But you'd just be doing something different. So it's very difficult to say, like, oh, it, it, we, we're at this stage because of the t- decisions that I've made, because you're reliant on so many different factors. Um, 
Within that, of course, the things that you do have control over are how much you can dedicate yourself to something. So when that opportunity does arrive, when that luck falls into line and that opportunity does land in your lap, what you do with it, that's certainly something that you can have control over, right? And that's when you can say, look, okay, am I going to kind of fob this off and not treat it seriously? Or am I going to work four days straight to try and get this thing done? What will that lead well, to? Exactly. Then right? That's where the fear comes in because right. <laughs> when you when you acknowledge that there's uh, that much luck involved, which there is, and when the opportunity does show up, you don't want it to be the last one. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, totally. So the best thing, like I could say, like it's obviously difficult to talk about this stuff unless you've kind of lived through those sort of situations as well. And I understand, like everybody, like there's a lot of people that are just trying to, you know, might be at a younger age and trying to figure out what they're wanting to do with their lives. And they can hear people like us talking about this sort of thing and think, well, I mean, if that's the case, I have no control over it. What do I do? And that's not the message that I'm trying to get across either. No, no, you have a lot of control. There's just certain things that... There's just certain things like who you're going to meet, for instance, Mm. like who you're going to meet that's going to have a crucial role in your life. Right. Whether you get hit by a car, things like that. Yeah, totally. All those all those things, big or small, that you can't control do ultimately uh, end up greatly influencing where your life goes. Mm. But those things shouldn't be the reason that you don't work your ass off. Yeah, totally. Totally. Because... Oh, no, please. Oh, go. sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just oh, going to say, just, like, yeah. <laughs> we just did that thing. Um, <laughs> we did. <laughs> no, all I was going to say is, like, you just got to do stuff. Just make a decision on something. Go with something. Dedicate yourself to something. And this is what people mean when they say, if you're passionate about something, it will pay off. Like, you don't know how, you don't know when, you don't know what that will do. You don't know that skill that you're practicing when you're 18 years old is going to come back into play in something completely unrelated when you're 28 years old. But everything you do kind of accumulates together. So just do stuff. Don't sit around and wait for it to happen. Do things. Get involved with things. Actively live life. Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, the reason I say that is because I I think back to all the things that that I did, like, say, as a teenager, not just the music stuff. Like, uh, my parents would send me to these conference, business conferences back wow. then. So, like, I remember being 17 and going to Hartford, Connecticut, and sitting in these business conferences, learning all about engineering win-win solutions. And I, I was sitting there thinking, why on earth Wow, am I doing this shit, right? So, at 17, I just wanted to be playing guitar and, like... <laughs> trying to find a girlfriend and and uh writing a concerto but <laughs> at that but but learning all that stuff uh going to business conferences from a very young age um all these different things like actually living an active life with intention a lot of those things came to fruition or greatly influenced what I'm doing now for instance mm. um it's all in the dna right so I do think that people should do more than just music. Mm. I will say that too. Mm. Um, It's at least helped me a lot. Like, you know, so you have martial arts, you did army stuff. I'm sure you did other stuff as well with your life. Uh, It sounds like you've had a very full life besides just the music part of it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I like, I like getting out and doing things too, right? Like, um, I think what's interesting is that uh, music itself has become such a, a desk-ridden job now, right? You're really stuck to a desk and you're staring at a computer. 
Um, it's the funniest thing when people say, "Oh, so you work in video game industry? So do you play video games all day?" And I'm like, "No, no, no, I don't play, don't play, don't play video games all day at all. Um, I do sit at a computer all day." And they're like, "Oh, so you must like play games as well, right?" I'm like, "No. By the end of the day, after I've been standing in front of a computer for 18 hours, the last." damn thing I want to do is to sit down and play another bloody video game and stare at another screen. So um, I really love getting out. I love doing more sort of physical stuff. I love doing hiking things and, uh, you know, getting out and being physical and enjoying the world a little bit, especially the natural world. Um, I love that sort of stuff, man. That's really cool. That sort of keeps me going. And I find I look forward to a lot of that stuff as well because it's so different to standing in front of a computer and, you know, tweaking plugins and settings and stuff like that. Um, and same again, that's not to say that I'm not passionate about music and say that therefore I'm passionate about something else and that music has become the job. It's not like that at all. It's just that your your human brain isn't a computer. It really isn't. And you can't you, you can't treat yourself like some sort of industrial machine that you just feed fuel into and it <laughs> just keeps pumping out some very predictable result. It doesn't. Your body's this, you know, um, organic, um, you know, creepy thing that just, it's it's unpredictable and, and it needs stimuli to keep going. Um, the equivalent, interestingly, is like we don't do it to animals. If we lock an animal in a concrete room with a window and, you know, feed it food under the, the desk or whatever, it's like that's animal cruelty, right? But, but we, we do that to ourselves every day. And of course, anybody would look at that situation and go, well, an animal would go insane. An animal would get depressed. An animal would get crazy. An animal would, would get aggressive, right? And, and humans, we try to do that ourselves to each other. And um, you can't do that, right? So you've got to go find something else. You've got to have some sort of outside influence. But interestingly, too, as you said there, too, like I, all these things kind of accumulate over time and, and help each other out. So the solutions that you come across to solve a problem in some other element of your life will somehow influence the the decision you're making on a song one day, right? And even what you choose to write about as a musician needs to come from somewhere outside of the room and what you're writing, yeah? So... Absolutely, because if not, it just starts to sound like scale exercises. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> that super lame music school music. Right. Oh, that's, I mean, that's... Like, I remember when I went to music school... Um, I was around a bunch of dudes who were very technically gifted. Mm. And by the way, I don't think that technique means bad music. Like I know a lot of very technically gifted musicians who write amazing music. But uh, I was around a lot of very technically gifted musicians who uh, just wrote garbage. So like the worst music I've ever heard. <laughs> it's the fastest worst music I've ever heard. And my theory was just that it's because they never did anything mm. all, like besides go to the practice room. And so if like all your subconscious has to work off of is your dorm room, the practice room and your guitar teacher's room, your music's not going to be very interesting. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I deal with that every day. It's really quite fascinating, right? So with video games, a lot of the job of music in a video game is to en enhance the mood that you want the player to feel. Uh, in whatever situation they're going to be in. And video games are, you know, inherently pretty narrow. So it's a lot of, a lot of fighting and saving people and shooting other baddies and all this sort of stuff. It's pretty, pretty narrow, right? We're not dealing with deep, complex emotions that you might find in a book, for example. So what's really fascinating, right, is, is so many times in the past I've sat down with a bunch of developers and they're like, you've got your sword, right? You've just run down the, the creepy hallway past the dead skeletons and you come out into this vast chasm and you're going to fight this giant octopus, right? I'm like, cool, easy, <laughs> no worries. 
And um, and they're like, so what we want is a big orchestral film score. And I'm like, why? I've never held a sword and I'm never going to fight a giant octopus before. I get that. But I've been in a fight before, right? And this is the emotion that we're trying to portray here. We're trying to portray, look, yep. you're the individual there. The, your, your opponent is a lot bigger than you. They're kind of scarier than you. You're kind of scared. Um and that's the emotion that we're trying to get across here. Now, when I was going into a fight when I'm a teenager, I haven't got a film score in my ears, right? I'm listening to Megadeth, <laughs> right? Or I'm listening to, to Bulls on Parade or something to psych myself up, right? Like, it's funny, if you watch MMA fighters when they're going on stage, like before they enter the octagon, when they've got their, their you know, earbuds in, they're listening to some music, I doubt they've got Hans Zimmer playing in their ears, right? They've probably got Eminem playing in their ears or something, right? <laughs> Or, or and, death metal or something. Yeah, exactly, whatever it might be. But that stuff shaped the way I feel about certain situations, not Stravinsky. And I, I do get that at that period in time, you know, listening to Stravinsky or another brilliant composer from whichever period we may choose from, they were reflecting the world that they lived in. But I don't understand that world. I wasn't around that time. I wasn't in Europe in the 1930s and 1940s and writing music like that. I wasn't Shostakovich and, you know, writing music that was being inspired by, you know, invasions of, of, of Russia and things. I, I don't understand that. And it's, I feel it's very inappropriate for me to take the end product of what they did and apply that to something that I'm doing now. It just doesn't make sense to me at all. So that's a great, great way to put it, by the way. Like I now like I, I was so I'll tell you, like when I heard your like the Doom soundtrack, for instance, for the first time, I was like, wow, this is not what I was expecting. Right. Cool. At all. This is this is awesome. But this is not what I was expecting. Like it's kind of like Nine Inch Nails meets Slipknot meets Ministry meets badass video game stuff. Just it was just cool. It was just cool stuff, and I was like, wow, this really does actually make sense for this game. Right. And this is, like, badass stuff. And I was surprised because I just I wasn't expecting to hear metal like like that. I wasn't expecting to hear future metal. Um, and now that you explain it like that, like, that's, that, that's the feeling you're trying to get across in that way mm. uh, for the modern day that you live in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and I think of it like, like, you know, when I was a teenager and I'm into a fight, like um, in my ears, I was blasting <laughs> Megadeth when I might have been splitting up with my teenage girlfriend. Right. I wasn't listening to some sappy film score to make me feel better or whatever. You know, I might put some other music on that, that, that kind of inspired me at the time. Right. That's and that that reflects the feeling that I had then. And that's all I'm trying to do, because that's what I understand. I don't understand music from the 20th century, you know, symphony composers. I don't understand it. I can, I can look at it on a page and I can understand it, and that's not all what I'm talking about. I understand it on a technical level, but why they chose the notes that they chose, I don't understand. I don't understand. Because I'm not of that period. I'm not of the period of, of Beethoven writing the equivalent of pop music at that time, or Mozart writing, you know, these catchy mer uh, melodies for the Austrian aristocracy to listen to, to make themselves feel better about their lives in, in Europe at the time. I don't understand that because I'm not of that period. So if I take that music and I put it over something from now, to me, it always has a disconnect. And I have a lot of trouble with that, like with movies and with other video games. 
you know, if I'm playing Call of Duty something or whatever, some something that might even be reflecting modern, you know, troubles and modern issues, but the music sounds like it's from the 20th century or whatever, I, it's a complete disconnect for me. And it feels more like a superficial attempt to identify with film as an art rather than an audience on an emotional level. It's interesting that you say this because... Uh Lately, when I've been listening to orchestral soundtracks, I've started to feel, and, uh, you know, everyone listening, forgive me for saying this, but um, I've started to feel like the purely orchestral soundtracks don't make sense to me anymore. Sure. Like, they're starting to feel really, really dated in a way that, like, is making it hard for me to get into the movies anymore. Like, if there's no sort of futuristic element to it or current element at least uh to the music it's almost like i can't i like i can't get into it as much so i know exactly what you're talking about mm, yeah yeah and it's weird like, i mean we're just moving past we are way past the 20th century now right yeah right um and of course, I mean, there is a role for that sort of thing, right? Like if I'm watching a period drama and it is set in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in that sort of period, then of course I'm going to expect to hear that sort of music. It's going to identify with that. Um, yes. Because, I mean, the visuals themselves I don't understand. Again, I didn't grow up in that period, so I don't know what the visuals would have been like. So it's always somebody's interpretation of what that looked like. And of course we do that with sound. We, we make an interpretation of what we believed that they might have listened to. So that makes perfect sense there. In regards, I find it rather disconnecting when you might find a film that is a period piece but has, say, modern music to try and identify to a modern uh, audience. I find that conflicting as well. I find it kind of bizarre. Um, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I think Quentin Tarantino can pull that off, but... um, I was about to say, he could do it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, that's the thing. So, it's interesting. See, you you mentioned that as well. Like, you, you you don't feel an emotional connection to that stuff, right? When you're watching the film, it kind of takes you out of the story in a way, and it, it doesn't serve its role in the best way it can. Yeah, I'm actually even starting to feel less of a connection to pure uh, pure orchestral music, right. the stuff that I grew up with around my dad. Like, uh, I've been feeling this way for years, actually. Like, it, especially in the past 10 years, like... I go to an orchestral concert and I'm just like, God, this sounds so old. <laughs> like, um, and it's weird because I, I'm not diminishing the artistic merit of any of it, obviously. You know, those, mm. some of the, obviously the greatest minds of their time wrote those pieces that have uh, stood the test of time. Yeah. And they're incredible. Like, you can't fuck with Gustav Mahler. Right. But, it just sounds so old to me now that I have a hard time relating to it. Mm. So even outside of video games or movies, just on a purely musical level, um, I'm having a harder and harder time relating to it. And so I can completely understand people who were born past the year 2000, for instance, mm. not being able to relate to that kind of music at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what's happened too is an interesting thing is within film, and you definitely find it in video games, is that you find a weird situation where people, so I'm, I'm talking about people that are working in the film or working in the game, are simply reflecting on an emotional level other films and video games. So what I mean by that mm-hmm. is we get situations in a movie that could only happen in a movie. There is nothing realistic about it whatsoever. But we're meant to have some sort of emotional response to that because we've seen that scene in a movie so many times before. 
And it's the same in a video game level. Like, I'm never going to grab a sword and go find a giant octopus, but I've probably played that same level in 20 bloody video games over the last couple of years, right? So, um, and and when, as a creator, all we're doing is taking influence from the, the realm in which we're working in, we run that danger of just reflecting that stuff. We're just holding a mirror up to that stuff. We're not bringing any outside influence in. And I think it's quite interesting when we, when we do come across a video game or a, a film that touches us on a more deeper level, it's because it's reaching from somewhere outside of the film industry or the game industry. It's funny what I couldn't stop thinking of when you were talking about uh, movies uh, basically using themselves as an emotional reference is uh, how many movies have you seen where a guy is just like, this is the last mission. <laughs> this, is my, this, is my, this is my last right. time yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and then then what do you are you're a cliche right that's it you've become a cliche yeah yeah so i've got some questions here from our crowd cool that i'd like to get into because i've got quite a few if you don't mind answering yeah of course few. absolutely i'd be happy to. um they're actually really really excited that you're here and uh I'm going to try to skip ones that I think you've probably been asked 8 million times or <laughs> that we already covered. But um, some of them I just have to ask. Sure, man. So Tyler Rodriguez was wondering, how did you find yourself in the world of making video game soundtracks? Yeah, it's a cool question, Tyler. Um, so super condensed version, because this is many, many years of stuff, of course, as you can imagine. But I finished up with school. I tried to go to a conservatory of music, but I found it wasn't really what I was interested in studying because of probably those similar reasons. It was reflecting music of a time that I don't understand. Um, at that period, home computing setups were quite relatively cheap and home music making software was starting to get cheap. And I started looking at it. I was like, man, you know, I, I might actually be able to make music from home now. Uh, you know, for the first time ever, I don't need to go into a big recording studio, right? This is really, really just at the verge of this sort of stuff. These things were cheap. They were consumer. So I started fooling around with that stuff and I made some music and, um, I was like, well, what do I do with this stuff? And it honestly was pretty crap. It wasn't good enough to go be on the radio. It wasn't good enough to be in a movie. Um, but I was really into video games. And I was like, oh, man, maybe I could find some work in, in video games. And at that time, there was about 40 different companies in Australia that were making video games. But there was really nobody here that was doing music. And for me, it was like a really interesting kind of opportunity staring at me in the face. If I got pretty good with making music on a computer at home, maybe I could get work in the video games. So I started doing this sort of stuff. I'd print it to a CD and I'd send these CDs out to video game companies. And after a while, surprisingly, and luck, I started getting some callbacks. I started doing a couple of jobs from there. Um, when you say after a while, what do you mean? Oh, it was probably about two or three years. And, so uh, two or three years of sending these CDs. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. And during that period, I was um, supporting myself by teaching guitar and playing in local cover bands. That's kind of how I was making money at that time. Um, so you didn't give up after sending the first one? No, it was, you know, and I don't know why. I mean, you know, because a lot of the times you'd get them back and they'd still be wrapped up in plastic or whatever. And they'd say, sorry, we listened to your album, but we don't really like it. And of course, they're still wrapped in plastic. Um or they just wouldn't get back to you. But I realize now that that was just timing and, you know, maybe they didn't need music or any of that sort of thing. There's all sorts of reasons. 
Um, but anyway, after a while, I started getting enough video game work to be able to give away the guitar teaching and give away the uh, gigging. Uh, and then I was able to really focus on that stuff and go, okay, well, this is starting to work now, right? This is starting to gain momentum. So I'd buy more computer equipment and better sound equipment and go from there. Um, and then things started really sort of happening when I started to travel to San Francisco each year to do a, a game developers conference, GDC it was called, uh, still called. And um, that's where all these video game companies from all around the world converge on San Francisco for about a week. And they just discuss video games. It's a big conference. And there's like 20,000 people that did go each year. It's absolutely huge. It's about 30,000 now. It's absolutely massive. And I started going there and I started meeting different people and I picked up a mentor. And... Um, I still consider him to be my mentor now, and I feel that everything I know I learned from, from him. Uh, his name's Charles Deenan. He's been in the, the industry for a long, long time. And he's an absolute genius with sound design. He's, a, he's very much more of a sound designer, although he's written some pretty cool music and things in the past as well. But his, uh, his sonic mixing skills is really cool. And I learned a lot from him, and I worked pretty solidly with him for a few number of years, especially uh, he was at EA at the time, so I was working on the Need for Speed franchise and different bits and pieces. Um, and then just kind of branched out from there. Once that stage sort of happened, I was, you know, I was pretty good with, with some skills um, that I had under my belt because of that period and had some credits and things and uh, was able to sort of reach out to people on bigger projects and they wouldn't, wouldn't ignore me, you know, to my great surprise, of course. Um, so, yeah, and that's, that's like a super condensed version. I hope that kind of answers the question. Okay. But it does, and it's just interesting. Um, so you you put yourself out there and you didn't get discouraged. So you put yourself out there for years consistently. You networked uh, for years consistently and you found yourself the right mentorship. I mean, that kind of checks off all the right boxes. In my opinion. <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's so, awesome, dude. Phil Pluscott is wondering, how long did it take you to complete the Doom soundtrack? Hey, Phil, I worked on Doom for about 18 months. Uh, it took about 10 years to get on Doom. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Franklin <laughs> Bindles was wondering, what advice would you give people who want to write for video games as hey, well? Yeah, cool. So Franklin, that's a really cool question, dude. I'd say at this stage, the most important thing is to be uh, unique and to write memorable music. Uh, sadly, the, just the ability to make music isn't, isn't enough anymore. Um, when I started, it kind of was. And I know that sort of sounds like me, you know, spitting on the industry a little bit. But, I mean, games back then were a lot lower quality than they are now. now well, things change. You yeah, know? absolutely. Now they're, you know, yeah. multiple hundred million dollar budgets and they have Hollywood actors and Hollywood writers. And, you know, it's huge now. It's absolutely massive. So what you're competing with now isn't just the ability to write music. It's the ability to write, you know, really good music that's kind of catchy, that people like, that's appropriate to the, to the video game. And that's a skill that takes time. And so I'd practice um, identifying with music. So these sort of funny things that I used to do, right, and these sound really, really like cringy and corny, but just bear with me. But you want to practice not the ability just to be able to play scales up and down whatever instrument it is or whatever it might be. You don't just want to practice, you know, compressing things in your door or whatever it is that you, however you've come into music. You want to practice the ability of making things that feel a certain way. So one of the skills and drills that I used to practice was I'd play a chord right? Like a random chord. I just put my fingers on the fretboard and I just play something. And I wasn't really concerned what the notes were, but I'd close my eyes and I'd play this chord. And then I'd write down what feelings it would give me. 
And to start off with, it was like, oh, this chord feels sad or this chord feels happy, right? And of course, that's the basic difference between minor and major chords that everybody discusses. But after a while, when you practice that a little bit more, and I'm saying, you know, do it 15 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, 20 minutes a day. You can do it in the radio. If you just put a song on and, and listen when you're driving in a car or whatever, you can do that sort of thing. Like, how is this chord making me feel? Or how is this sound making me feel? But after a while, you're, it's, you're not like, oh, this makes me feel sad. You're saying, this makes me feel like, you know, I'm, I'm on the train and I'm taking that first bend to the left in the snowy winter after I'm leaving my girlfriend behind who I haven't seen for 18 months. And that one specific chord summarizes that feeling. And nothing else does. Nothing else comes close. And you move one of those notes by a semitone, and then you're in a completely different universe, a completely different feeling. And so my, my kind of biggest advice would be to really tap into how music makes you feel, not just the technicalities behind making the music. That's the stuff that those guys I told you about at my music school were not doing. Right. <laughs> so... That's some great advice, and it makes me think of a story. Uh, well, not a story. I just I used to be obsessed with the Beatles to a certain mm. degree. You know, music from another century that yeah, I sure. actually really related to. At one point in time, uh, I still love their songs. But I remember John Lennon saying that he didn't know any theory or anything like that. But if uh, but if his producer said to uh, to do something that sounded like birds, he would know the right chord. Right, yeah, sure. Hmm. Or that, or that something that sounded like a sunrise or something. Yeah. And people he would often, know the right chords. Yeah, and people often dismiss those phrases and instead look at the notes of the chord and how that chord resolves to the next chord and then how the melody written over the top of that chord resolves into the next chord. But honestly, all that stuff is bullshit if you don't understand the feeling behind why they did those things. You can analyse that stuff as much as you like, but the ability to create a feeling was what John Lennon, Paul McCartney and the other guys did so yeah. well, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's... That's what it took to, you know, basically change the world right. is to tap into feelings. Exactly. And uh, the best soundtracks ever, the ones that are the most memorable are, you know, they conjure feelings. Totally. So, so I don't think anything you said is corny. <laughs> so here's a question from Dave Vol, which is, what is your mindset like when creating these compositions? I've noticed... Like with Doom and Wolfenstein stuff, you seem to write like a method actor with lots of imagery of the project you're working on, like using patch 666 on your gear, <laughs> hiding satanic imagery in the Doom tracks, using gear like Hellfire, etc. Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, so what's the mental... Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, for me, I've kind of spoken a little bit about this before, so I mean, I'm probably just going to reiterate. Um, but but um, I hope that's okay. I mean, it's because I think there's an important yes. lesson. Yeah, I think there's an important lesson here is that you're not one musician, right? So when you take on a project, you're pouring all of your outside influences into that project solely and 100% for the duration of that project. When you leave that project, of course, you've accumulated a few new skills, but you've got to forget everything. So when I'm approaching Doom, I need to forget Wolfenstein. When I'm approaching Wolfenstein, I need to forget Doom. They need to be separate. And of course, we might arrive in a similar place that might sound similar, but you go through a giant journey to reach that point. 
So what do I do? Well, I get really kind of obsessed with it, right? So with Doom, you know, it was doing everything from, you know, blocking out all sunlight in the room um, and creating this dark cave-like environment and lighting candles. Um, I found some really uh, great old books at this book fair that's kind of local uh, of them writing about like, you know, witchcraft and Satanism and things from, you know, turn of the century stuff. And I read all that and I'd get obsessed with that. And, um, you know, you do whatever you can to kind of get your your body thinking about doom on a subconscious level, right? And I know, again, that probably sounds like really corny and cringy or whatever, but you've got to get to the point where every musical decision you make is appropriate to the project that you're working on on a subconscious level. It's not a fight anymore. It becomes natural. So you haven't practiced the ability to make music. You've practiced doom, right? That is your skill. And then when Doom finishes and you jump on a different project, you unlearn all of that stuff and you relearn for the new project. You get obsessed in whatever that new project might be and you practice the ability to make music for that project. So that's that's the kind of the mental state. And that goes beyond like a certain, you know, effects processor or using a certain patch on a keyboard or whatever. All that stuff is honestly superficial. It's You've got to be thinking of it on a deeper level. So, you know, it's interesting. I, what I just thought about was how at least when working with bands, the production schedules have gotten so quick that it's almost like that goes out the window. I feel like that that 18-month period that you talked about leading up to, you know, the six weeks where you lay it all down Mm. or the three months where you lay it all down. So during that 18-month period, are you basically, is that when you're, like, is that when you're learning what Doom is, basically? Yes, precisely, yeah. Yeah. Man, to, so I, it just makes me think, like, if producers just had more time with bands these days mm. to, you know, to find out what their actual artistic message really was. Yeah, I think it's, rather, so, yeah, I mean, it's so difficult as a band, too, especially if you're coming in, like, and you haven't worked with a producer before, Um you're kind of nervous, like you don't want to express yourself too much, yeah? And yeah. you kind of don't want to step on any toes, you want to be polite, and then you just want to get your stuff out the door and done. But it's really important to be very vocal about what you want, what you feel. And even though you might not have 18 months to work on a project, if you're 18 years old, you've had 18 years of experience that you're putting into this this music that you're making. Music is just the superficial thing that you're using to express your deep emotions from the last 18 years, right? So you've already learned that. If you're writing music from your, that's what people want to talk about when they say like writing music from the soul or whatever, you know, it's a difficult way to mm-hmm. talk about it, but you're writing from your own experiences. You're writing from your, your past loves and losses and fights and successes and failures and, and all this sort of thing, right? And it's important to discuss that stuff with the producer. And honestly, if your producer doesn't want to hear that stuff, find a different producer. Seriously, find a different producer. Read into some of those stories about like Ross Robinson pulling out these amazing performances from Jonathan Davis and things and the the Corn Records and stuff. And the stuff he'd do, like, you know, poke him with needles and strip him nude and, and you know, so he was vulnerable and stuff like this. Like, the, he was doing a lot to try and draw out those deep, dark feelings that might have been in there, right? And if your producer's not interested in that, find a different producer. Seriously, find a different producer. The they haven't got your best interest at heart in that case. Completely agree. So here's one from Nick Matsky, which is, what are your thoughts on the way guys had to compose for the old school game systems like NES or Genesis or SNES, being that they had such limited audio technology, but came up with arguably 
some of the best gay music of all time. Yeah, absolutely. My, I totally agree, Nick. Yeah. Yeah, um, he goes he goes on, he says, My thoughts have always been that the limited technology forced them to really come up with catchy melodies and kick ass tunes and not rely on sounds or productions. It was all about the music. Mm. Yeah, it's totally true. Absolutely. When all you've got is like a noise waveform and a square waveform to work with, um, you're going to get really clever with how you use that stuff um, because those those two things inherently sound absolutely horrible. So when you, you've got to turn those two horrible sounds into listenable music, um, man, if you can come up with Super Mario Brothers theme using that stuff, you're a genius, right? Um, so yeah, I think so. I think so. And nowadays, you know, if we jump on a project, I can have any anything I want. I can have a full orchestra. I can have, you know, uh, the most bizarre things. I I can have, you know, Soviet synthesizers from 30 years ago shipped over from the Ukraine just to make a certain sound or whatever. We can do whatever we want, right? But does it make, make better music? I, I completely disagree. I don't think it makes better music at all. Um, and of course, it's no hidden secret that, you know, limitations breed creativity. That's, that's a given. That's an absolute given. Um, and that's, that's probably a lesson that you can learn whenever you're working on one of your own projects too, is you can just write down a couple of, uh, you know, restrictions that you're going to, or not any necessary restrictions, but I remember Trent Reznor talking about like, he feels that, I don't know if he still feels this way, but I know at the time he was feeling that like any new box that he bought, so any new drum machine, any new guitar pedal, any new synthesizer, any box, right? Anything that makes a sound had a song in it. And I think what he meant by that is that he would buy it and just explore it 100% and find whatever sound he could pull out of it and whatever sounds uh, could be inspired from that sort of thing would inspire full songs. And I think there's something cool about that as well. So, yeah, I totally agree, Nick. Good question, buddy. Here's one from Oscar Weston, which is, when creating the Doom soundtrack, did you ever have a moment where you were just experimenting and suddenly came up with a sound or something along those lines that just made you go, oh, shit, this has to go in the soundtrack? Um, I think I think I try to do that for the like everything. I mean, that's that's the idea. Yeah, I was about yeah. to say when when wouldn't you do yeah, that? You, yeah, <laughs> I'm never like you know this sound is terrible. It doesn't fit Doom, so I better put it in. I mean, it's never this like song that. Song sucks. <laughs> Let's use it. But I think uh, yeah, I think like Doom was all about kind of experimenting with different boxes and pedals and channels and uh, gear and techniques and stuff like that. And the reason that that experimentation took place was to try and engineer situations like that where you'd have all these boxes set up on the floor and you'd tap something and this sound would come out and you have, I'd still have no idea how that sound came about but I'd just make sure I was recording everything and you'd take enough of those like amazing cool sounds that would just naturally come out of whatever thing you'd set up and use those and use those things to make the music so I think that was pretty much pretty much the whole thing. There was a bunch of stuff I didn't end up using, and I learned a lot about um, the importance of music when making really noisy uh, tracks. And what I mean by that is that um, if you're really distorting the hell out of something to the point where the melody is gone, then you've destroyed the music. You've really thrown that baby out with the bathwater. Um, you, all you've got is a bunch of white noise then, which is not interesting. It's the underlying music that needs to come through. And that's why I kind of explored with a lot more distortion boxes and pedals and analog distortion versus plugins. Because I find plugins, when you really start cranking the plugin, all it does is just becomes like a fuzzy, noisy mess. And the actual underlying note starts to disappear. Whereas I can line up five distortion pedals on the ground and run a note through it, and the note still comes through uh, really quite clearly in really quite interesting ways. So, yeah, that's, that's a cool question, though, dude. That was cool. 
Here's one from Basile Aepli, which is, do you have any advice on how to mix low-tune guitars with bassy synths and impacts like on Doom without overloading the songs with low end? Yeah, this is a really cool question, Basile. So um, this is like really important, super rudimentary um, mixing stuff, but um, so just bear with me. But the importance is identifying the role of what instrument does in the mix. So you've got to pick out of that what instrument is going to play the role of the bass. And if it's the nine-string guitars, then you focus on creating the bass to be nice and focused in the nine-string guitars, and you make sure you take that bass out of anything that's not the nine-string guitars. If you think it's the synth, then you focus on having the, the bass and the synth really solid, and you start taking out the bass from those guitars and the other elements there. Um, and honestly, on Doom, I found that I was not getting the low end from the guitars in the most interesting way. I was getting low end from synth uh, in a lot more interesting ways that applied to the Doom project, for sure. I'm not saying this is for everything, and please don't read any of this stuff as gospel as the way to do things. This was just for this project. And honestly, if I soloed up some of the multi-tracks from Doom and you heard the guitar tracks, there's like, some of them have no bass under like 300 hertz. They are just the the most narrow, mid-rangey, honky things, right? But when combined with the synths and the sub underneath and the kick drum and all the other bits that are going on, that creates the full sound. So um, yeah, it's a one big conglomerate sound. Yeah, and, and that's I, I think you've hit it there. Actually, you you've explained there exactly what I was trying to get across is that you've got to think about it as one sound. I don't think about a mix as guitars, synths, bass, drums, kick drum, snare drum, whatever vocals. I think about it as one instrument. It's one thing working together. I'm never thinking about things in isolation. I'm never thinking about that. It's always how these things fit together to create one sound, a unified sound. I can totally hear that, too. So here's a question from Dave Vol, another one, which is, I've seen you talk about using the Cali 76 pedal as your two-bus compressor. I'm curious how you accomplished this on an entire mix as it's a mono instrument pedal with quarter-inch ins and outs. Yeah, totally. So um, the the use of the Cali 76 happens in a couple of different ways. I can kind of talk you through a couple of different ways that are treated. So with Doom, what I would do is get the mix sounding in a really nice way, uh, or well, to Doom, Doom, nothing in, in Doom is nice, but um, in, in a way that I'd kind of like, um, usually just with a plug-in on the end, usually just with an 1176 plug-in or something like that. Um, from there, once I had that, I would print the stereo mix and I would run the left channel and the right channel one after another through the 76. Now, of course, everybody's screaming, oh my God, but what are you worried about? Like, you know, uh, phase issues and things getting out of sync and out of time. Absolutely. And I don't care. I really don't care. I would set it up and I would run the five minute track through it and then I would stop and then I'd run the five minute track through it again from the other side and I'd line them up. If the bass started to move a little bit to the left, I didn't care. I don't care. Um, <laughs> and, and I was like, I know I probably should, but I, I just don't care. So that was kind of it. But why I love the 1176 is that I find it compresses um, in a really interesting way, like it really smashes. But I, I love the input and output transformer. Um, and I would clip the input and output transformer. Sorry, the output transformer. I, I would clip that on the way out. And that gives it a really nice, like it acts as a limiter in the same sort of way. So it's not just compressing the signal, but it kind of limits the the, uh, the peaks as well in a kind of really cool way that not like a limiter does inside the computer. 
So that's how that was. So I don't mix with it on. Um, I do have two of them, but they don't sound the same. So you can't really set up a left and right on the on the mix bus and kind of mix into it as you would like a proper bus compressor. Um, so that's kind of that there. What I've moved to a lot more now is using more analog equipment on the bookends of the project. So I use analog equipment to create the sounds in the beginning, and then it goes into the computer. And I manipulate it and do things with it in, inside the computer. And then while I'm mixing... Um, I have it running out to a couple of different boxes. Uh, it goes through a Culture Vulture Super 15, uh, and then it goes into a uh, the Wes Audio Dione uh, 500 series compressor, um, which is great because you can control that from a plugin. So I don't know if any guys have seen it, but you can hook it up, hook it up via USB. And me twiddling the knob on the plugin um, changes the uh, hardware. It's really, really super cool. Uh, cool. I've seen it. It's really cool. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's a great sounding compressor too. It's really, really cool. It's not just a novelty thing. It's a really awesome sounding compressor. Um, And that's it. And then it goes back into the computer after that and then runs through a couple of different more plugins um, just for that. So, yeah. So I hope that answers the question, dude. I think so. Here's one from Ekron Hill, which is, do you compose the music first, then do sound design, or do you have your sound design inspire you? With so many complex layers of complex synth sounds, how do you know when to say when? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, there is a process to it, and I definitely follow a process. Um, I don't randomly make sounds and then try and make a song out of that. I've never found that works. Never found that works at all. Because what happens is you start sacrificing musical decisions in order to highlight the sound design. And that's not music, that's just showing off. That's like scale music to me. It's the equivalent of like playing scales really fast, just showing off sound design stuff. So what I do is I sit down with the most crappy preset sounds I can find. Um, Usually it's a noise thing for drums and it's square waves and like the worst sounding sounds I can make. Um, And I will write a track, right? using those crappy sounds. And when I say write a track, I mean it's just a bare bones track. It's a basic groove, which is the most important thing. Then we have a melody um, and our chord progressions and things like that. I have the track there. Then once I'm settled on that and I can get away with a musical solid sort of feeling from that, I will go about creating sounds that best represent that. So I'll have my melody and then I'll go, well, how can we represent this melody? What sort of interesting things can we do to represent this melody? And that's when the sound design aspect comes into it. Um, same with drums. It's like, okay, so that, that would thing would play the role of a kick drum. This thing would play the role of a snare drum. What's some interesting things we could do? Like we don't always have to have a kick drum, right? We don't always have to have a snare drum. Sometimes it can be just something that represents that role in the song and illustrates the groove. But every decision from a sound design side always comes back to does it illustrate the original uh, song in a way. So make good music first. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Then figure out how it sounds. Absolutely. So final question, and this is from Sean O'Shaughnessy, which is how do you know when you found the balance between repetitions of parts for longer sections of gameplay and still have enough unique material? Do songs tend to build from a single riff slash theme, or do you often find yourself mapping out the whole tune and then fleshing it out? Right, that's a really cool question. That Actually, this is the difference I find with video game music compared to any other sort of thing. So with the video game, what happens is that we write the song, yeah, and the song... I might split it into, say, what I would call like a verse and a chorus and a bridge and all that sort of thing. So you've got a song, right? It might be a five-minute track. And then what happens is that we break that song apart into all sorts of different 
bits and pieces. So you might literally just take out the verse and the chorus, or you might actually take out the individual stems from each part. Then what we do is we throw that stuff into the video game. Um, we use some complex tools to get it into the game, but essentially what we're doing then is trying to recreate the mix in the game, right? So when the, when the music is playing back in the video game, it's not like a stereo wave file that's playing back. Usually it's every individual part that is playing back together. It's like a big multi-track, imagine it like that. And the technology we use has gotten so good that I can have bus compressors, I can have effects distortions, I can have echoes and things running in the game in the background. You don't know this stuff's happening, but it's happening there in the background. It's like having Pro Tools running in the background of the video game. And so when we have that, what we can do is change things based on what the player is doing. So if the fight that the player is in gets more intense, we can push up the volume of the guitars or the drums or whatever it might be. If it's getting less intense, then we can change to a different section of the song and drop to a different, more intense version. So the reason we do this is so it's reactive. So when the player does something, it reacts to what they're doing and it actually feels a bit more uh, interesting that way. It doesn't feel so static. But it also aids in getting around the issue of repetition, which is what you originally asked about. We mm -hmm. used to we used to write like a 30-second or a minute-long loop, and that loop would just continuously play in the background. And you'd have to write a really interesting piece of music to be able to listen to it over and over again for 50 hours and not get bored with it. <laughs> so this is kind of the way that we kind of get around that. So yeah, it's um, so the, the tools that we use aid in our avoidance of repetition these days. Great answer. And Mick, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. I'm glad that we I'm glad we did this. I'm glad that we kept emailing each other until it actually happened. Yeah, right back at you, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat. I hope it's not like eight months before we get to speak again. Likewise, <laughs> uh, I we should do this again sometime and keep in touch. I've had a great time speaking to you, and thank you again for coming Dude, on. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, you know, hello to all the listeners, and thanks for tuning in. The The value of, of your podcast and Nail the Mix is so important. And, you know, if I could just leave everybody on one little final thought of, of advice or whatever that might be, is to do something that I've been trying to do this year a lot, which is improve the quality of information that you're absorbing. Tutorials on, you know, the internet, on YouTube, on Reddit, on forums are terrible. And if you're trying to learn, you don't have the necessary skills and knowledge to be able to define what's a good tutorial and what's a bad tutorial. But if you're able to take your music career a little bit more seriously and, um, you know, find a couple of spare dollars and purchase a subscription to a place. And I'm not doing this as a shout out or any of that sort of thing. But yeah, I didn't pay him for yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, just improve the quality of information that you're you're divulging. So, signing up to Nail the Mix or or a magazine subscription to Sound on Sound or any other those sort of things, the quality of filtered information that you're able to absorb that way is is going to help you so much more than browsing forums and hearing opinions from internet experts. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, good job, dude. I mean, you know, well done on all your successes and things like that. Well done. And, and thank thanks you. so much for, for having me on today. It's been really, really great to speak to you. Likewise. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike, founded on the idea that great drum sound should be obtainable for everyone. We focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. Go to drumforge.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.